dear friends, I'm turning to Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. These are very well-known words. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. And we'll be thinking about the two worst steps of life this evening. And that's what this text is about. Now, Jeremiah is the pleading prophet. Back in verse 9 of this chapter, he says, Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord. And that's what he's going to do. He's not going to bring charges against us or accusations against the people of Israel and Judah, but he's going, and us, in the course of time, but he's going to plead and reason with us and persuade us. And his illustrations and his arguments, the analogies he uses, just tumble out of these chapters, verse after verse. Some of the verses in this chapter have two analogies in a single verse. But in this 13th verse, there are the two evils. Well, what are the two evils, and what does he mean by them? Well, the word here, evils, means destructive wrongs. They are moral, morally wrong acts, and they are harmful damaging, destructive acts. So two evils, evil in both senses, that they are morally wrong and offensive to God and they are self-destructive to us. My people. But from the beginning of the verse, my people. Of course he's referring, first and foremost, to the Jews. And the significant thing here is it is God's people who have abandoned him and rejected him. Well, they were a people who had been blessed by God in a very distinctive and special way. He had taken them as a nation. He had made a covenant with them. He'd given them promises. He'd given them teachers. He'd given them a law, a wonderful, excellent law. He'd given them a method of worship and ceremonies which taught of himself. He'd given them demonstrations of his power, great deliverances when they were in need and they'd seen tremendous, well, miracles take place before their eyes. They had so many privileges and it was this people in particular who are in view as having abandoned him and turned away from him. My people, you can almost put the emphasis on it, have committed two evils. But by extension, we too are privileged people. Not in the same way, but we live in a land that has a tremendous history of God dealing with the people and blessing the people. 
This is the land has met other countries in Europe that were, was mightily affected, for instance, by the Reformation. At a time in the history of the land when uh, really everything was uh, according to superstition and human folly and tales and fables, there was a tremendous religious awakening and reformation and God gave preachers who put the clock back to the Bible and preached the message of salvation and vast numbers of people were converted and it transformed the tone and conduct and the beliefs of the country and established a whole new era and as people have said we got our power of reason back. We could think. We wanted to be educated all of a sudden. We wanted to lift behind, leave behind the Middle Ages of ignorance and superstition. But above all, we had the way of salvation, the gospel of Christ taught. And then subsequently, the great Puritan era. And then great awakenings when... Tremendous surges of blessing in which vast numbers were again converted happened repeatedly in this land. And so we've got a heritage today, although we are this generation, this particular age is an atheistic age, an unbelieving age that's turned away from these things, we have a heritage. We still benefit from centuries of strong moral ethical standards which the Christian faith imparted to the country just as a byproduct of salvation and being brought to know God. And so we, we have many advantages and a lot of light and understanding is still around and we still have freedom to open the Bible and to read it and study it. We're a privileged people, in a sense, even though, as I say, this generation is an unbelieving generation. So you can hear the pleading in the voice of the prophet as he speaks God's words, my people have committed two evils, and here they are. They're going to be illustrated. They have forsaken me, but look at the way it's put they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's tremendous language. Think of a fountain. It's a, a fountain where a great flood of water streams from the hillside, perhaps rising in the air, as fountains often do, perhaps just coming out of the ground copiously, and watering the hillside. It's a free supply. The well hasn't got to be dug. No exertion. No toil. Buckets have not to be lowered to the bottom of a well and hauled up hour by hour for your survival. It's a hot land there. But uh, the water just gushes out of the fountain. And it speaks of God's readiness to supply human beings freely with all that they require. It's a fountain of mercy. God will forgive our wanderings and our rebellions. 
though these things are hateful and they're selfish and they're insulting to him, he will freely forgive all our sin and take it away. Christ has come, the eternal Son of God, second person of the Trinity, to die in agony on Calvary's cross, to take the punishment of sin, an eternal punishment, somehow reduced into hours, compressed into a few hours, and is taken our deserved punishment if we are among those who repent and turn to him by the work of the Spirit of God. He's removed the guilt and the sin by his atoning death. And the blessing of God to draw us to himself, to make us his children, to visit us in our lives, to hear our prayers, to change our nature, to take us to heaven, all these mighty blessings are undeserved and unearned, freely bestowed upon us. Just as people come to the foot of a great gushing fountain and they freely take what they need, of water, there might be troops in battle, desperately thirsty, just in such need of that refreshment. There may be people living in the vicinity who bring their various vessels and fill them freely. The goodness of God and his forgiveness is bestowed freely on all who come to him. It's a fountain. It's an abundant supply. There is so much water coming from that fountain. In other words, as many as come will be supplied. You will never find it. It's run out. It will never be the case that you're the last one to apply and therefore there's nothing left. It's a fountain of loving kindness and free forgiveness and salvation and reconciliation with God. And in the history of the world, while time lasts, millions upon millions of people worldwide will have found the Lord and come to him, and they will all find abundant supply of new life and grace, and they'll receive the gift of prayer, and be able to call upon the Lord. It's a fountain. It's constant. Christianity isn't a passing emotion or interest, something that may take your attention for a while. If you truly come to God and you repent of sin and believe in Christ and give your life to him and trust in him, he changes you for all of life. You will never be lost. He will never let you go. Should you foolishly depart from him or be enticed away or drawn aside, he'll have a way to bring you back and to keep you sure to the end so that you enter into eternal glory. It's a constant supply. It's a clean and a pure supply. The salvation of God is to make us better people, 
to bring us into union with God and to change our hearts and our lives, to make mean people, generous people, cruel people, gentle people, selfish people, outgoing, unselfish people. The goodness of God transforms, gives us a new nature, a new outlook, a new heart. It's a pure thing, this fountain. It's wonderful, the fountain of salvation. Christ took it up, you know. Well, you do know in John chapter 4, verse 14, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst again. He takes up this illustration, first used in Jeremiah. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him. And it will spring up all through life and then forever. This fountain is a life-giving fountain. Where you get a fountain, the people who live around it, they channel it, they dig trenches, they irrigate the area, the barren dry land around Well, they run the water far and wide, and in no time at all, there's growth and crops and shrubs and trees, and it becomes a place of beauty, and the irrigation brings life to the entire community. A fountain is life-giving, gives you the fountain of salvation, a spiritual life that you never had before, and you love God. And you understand more and more of him through his word. And you pray to him and he helps you and blesses you. It's a fountain of experience, a fountain of remaking and advance in every sense. And it's a place of happiness. I mentioned the possibility of soldiers quenching their thirst. What a difference it makes to the mood and to happiness, to know Christ, to be eternally secure, to have all your past sins washed away. What an alteration it makes. And where there's a fountain, a great gushing fountain, there's a community. There people in olden times would build their homes. And there there would be fellowship and friendship And a community would arise, just as the fields were irrigated, that people would move in and they would join together and different trades between them and a community would prosper and flourish. And this fountain of salvation brings us into the community of Christ's people, where we have the closest friends, people who share the same Saviour, who love the same Lord, people who have had the same spiritual experience, people who are on on the same heavenly road. And they have so much in common, and they are as brothers and sisters in the Lord. What an illustration is the fountain. For my people have committed two evils, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. 
And what's the alternative? What have they turned to? What have they chosen instead? And hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What a wretched alternative. Hewed them out. The word in the Hebrew translated hewed is a rather elastic kind of word. Ideally, it would be better to translate it, they have worked themselves, fashioned for themselves, made for themselves. It can refer to hewing something out of rock or stony ground. It can equally cover something being made by carpentry, sawn and chopped and all the rest of it and assembled. So you don't really know whether the cistern in the illustration, and they had both kinds that I'm going to mention, is uh, dug or hewn out of rocky, stony ground and lined with lime and clay so that the householder or whatever has his own great tank. All the village community, they've worked at producing for themselves a ground system, a tank, a reservoir of water, or whether they made it a wooden tank and lined it with clay again and so on to use it. But that's labor. Why choose, says the illustration, if you've got a choice, why choose to make a ground system if you've got a fountain in the vicinity? Why, the difference is immense. This thing leaks. It can never be truly sealed, not with the materials and technology available to them in those regions at that time. It was not going to be reliable. It was going to have to be fed from some nearby well. A well would still need to be dug and a rope and buckets to bring up the water. It was going to be built by toil, filled and maintained by toil. It would let them down if it was your private system and you went away for a while You could be sure it would be dry by the time you were back. It wasn't being fed, supplied, worked. Why choose that? Something that was all labor and disappointment. That's the illustration in verse 13. Hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, all kinds of fractures and leaks that can hold no water. If I choose this world, as I did as a youngster years ago, and scorned faith in God, and had contempt for it, if I choose this world, I'm going to make my life in this world. I'm going to be a materialist. I'm going to shut out any notion of God and faith and the Lord and eternity. I'll be for here and now what I can get, what I can possess, 
what I can own, what I can be, what power or authority I might be able to get hold of, what I can enjoy, what sensual pleasures I can pursue, all this kind of thing. And that's, of course, everybody's got to maintain themselves and work and do well for their families and do their best. But we're talking about this world being where all your ambitions and hopes and supports and enjoyments are. There's nothing else. You have no purpose beyond the things of flesh and time. You have no purpose, no destiny, no future. Well, I'm digging out and making broken systems. I've got to put in all the effort, all the work to make myself happy. Happiness will come only in small bursts, just small enjoyments and a lot of drudgery, a lot of heartache, a lot of setbacks, a lot of cruel disappointments and many difficulties. And what's it all for? Old age, decrepitude, death, and then? But I put it out of my mind. I have to face my maker, my God, and give an account of what I've done with my life. And I've never paid homage to him, and I've never thanked him, and I've never served him, and I've never learned of him, and I've never obeyed him. Look at the illustration, a fountain of living waters, broken cisterns that you have to work constantly that can hold no water. What's our choice, friends? Where is life going for us? What is it for? What is its aim and objective? Those are the terrible alternatives. But these are described as evils. It is an evil thing to put aside God, to forsake the fountain of living waters. Well, of course it is. He made me. He fashioned me. He gave me everything I might be. I owe him everything. He's my creator and my rightful owner. He made me for himself, for me to honor him and worship him and to receive his blessing and his love. And I've spurned it. I've rejected it and put it aside. Of course, that's insulting. But it's outrageous, it's sinful. Two evils. It's an evil in that it's morally terrible. It's an evil because it's self-destructive and harmful. It's the worst thing you can possibly do to reject Almighty God, the fountain of living waters. To forsake him. And yet amazingly. He is ready to forgive. He must be our judge. 
he must punish sin. But if we look to him, he is ready to forgive. That's why Christ has come, and I've mentioned that, to suffer and to die, to make it possible for us to be forgiven. He has taken the punishment for us. And God remains ready to forgive us at cost to himself. Well, we take his gifts day by day. We breathe his air. We eat, we drink. Not only has he made us, but we take all his sustaining influences. And yet we reject him. Who is God? The kindest of people. Would you deliberately, dreadfully insult and hurt your wife, your husband, out of cruelty? Terrible. Would you deliberately hurt and insult your boss? Terrible. Consequences even greater. But you hurt and offend and reject and insult your maker and your sustainer, your keeper. Of course it's a moral wrong. And it's a terrible self-destructive move. That's what we're talking about. We even, well, we murder God. Of course you can't murder God. But that's what we try to do. That's what unbelief is. I don't believe. That's the attempted murder of God. Put him out of your thinking. Pretend he isn't there. Get rid of him altogether. The murder of God. We'll stand trial for that one day. Because it almost trivializes it, but I... I can remember hearing an illustration from a preacher in Canada many, many years ago, and it ran along these lines. You may possibly have heard it. I've heard it a number of times. There was a man, and he had a a guard dog. And it was pretty ferocious, this dog. And he kept it on a chain in the front yard or garden. And it had a few yards of chain, freedom of movement within that. But this particular dog had it in for aircraft. He didn't like aircraft. And if an aircraft came overhead, well, as it appeared in the distance with its sound, the dog would prick up its ears and look intently, and as soon as he identified this aircraft in the sky... He would begin to growl and bark furiously and hurl himself towards the aircraft on the length of the chain as if he could bring it down out of the skies. And he would bark furiously. And as the aircraft passed overhead, he'd turn round and run to the other extreme of his chain, barking at this aircraft until it disappeared in the distance and was heard no more. And the dog would then panting returned to where it sat or lay with great contentment 
It's as if it had done away with another intruder, done away with another aircraft. Of course, as far as the aircraft was concerned, it was entirely unaffected by this performance down there below. And so it is with Almighty God. Your unbelief doesn't get rid of God. In reality, he is unaffected. But he sees us. And one day we shall face him. And we murdered him in our hearts and got rid of him. It's a moral wrong, but it's a disastrous mistake because the one who would have forgiven us and blessed us and poured out his love upon us is then in the last day having to judge us and to banish us and to punish us. So it rightly says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Oh, that God would move in our hearts and affect us. I've got a hymn here. I'm going to read a couple of verses from it. We're not going to sing it this evening. It's by a man named Ambrose Searle. He lived in the 18th century, was a great friend of John Newton, another hymn writer and preacher here in central London. Now, this man was a naval officer, and he rose to become the uh, so-called secretary of the uh, naval force that was involved in the American uh, War of Independence. We may have lost that war, but apparently we won the naval battles. And this man, Ambrose Searle, recorded in great detail in numerous volumes all the sea battles, and they became literary classics. The first naval historian to actually write in an exciting manner. But uh, after a life, he rose to become commissioner of the Royal Navy, but he was converted to God. And he wrote very touching words about it. Jesus, commissioned from above, descends to us below and shows from whom the springs of love in endless mercy flow. There's your fountain illustration analogy. To me, he writes, who never sought his grace, who mocked his sacred word, who never knew or loved his face, but all his will abhorred. To me, who could not even praise when his kind heart I knew, but sought a thousand devious ways rather than find the true. Yet this Redeeming Saviour came, so vile a worm to bless, and took with gladness all my shame, and gave his righteousness. That's the blessing of Christ to those who seek him. Well, this is about the love of God. Let me tell you a closing illustration. 
I met a man, maybe 35 or more years ago, while I was speaking at a conference in Cornwall. And he was a burly chap, a lot taller than I am. And uh, he'd been, he was a rough diamond and had uh, been something of a bully and a, in his younger years. And I can imagine he'd be a formidable man. Anyway, he uh, was a binman. And he was the kind of foreman of his group or his truck. And uh, in his town, in Cornish town, collected the rubbish and the waste. And he knew nothing about Christ. And he lived his own life with his wife and family, but far from God. No interest at all. And these were the days before everything was in sacks. And people used to tie things up and put them in dustbins and the dustman would collect anything years ago. And he picked up a parcel. And it was three volumes, leather-bound volumes tied together with string. And as he picked it up, he thought, this is, this is rather nice. He could see the gold tooling on the spine. They were very dirty. But he could see they were probably under the dirt, very attractive things. So he didn't put them with the rubbish. He put them on a kind of running board on the truck to look at them later. And he took them home. And he was very pleased with them. He undid the string and cleaned them up. And when he had the time, he spent some time with brown shoe polish cleaning those uh, covers and shining the gilding on the spine and so on. And there were three very large volumes that would fit on his very accommodating mantelpiece. And his wife liked the appearance. So they were very pleased with these volumes. And there they sat for about a year. And he couldn't have told you what they were. He'd never looked that closely. And he wasn't a terribly literate man. But... Well, it so happened, the television broke down and he took it in for repair and they said it won't be ready for a week. Well, what was he to do when he was at home? They didn't know quite what to do with himself and one day he thought, I'll have a look at one of these books and he took it down. And what he had was a three-volume edition of Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible. Well, he'd never heard of Matthew Henry. He didn't know what it was all about. And he'd never read the Bible. But it was a beautiful, large volumes which set out the scriptures and then the commentary of Matthew Henry. And uh, he uh, began to read. And he turned, first of all, to Romans 6. And he started reading wonderful words about reconciliation and forgiveness and new life. And he read through Romans chapter 7, the good that I would, that I do not, and the plague and the terror of sin. Then he read into Romans 8, and the mercy and salvation of Christ, and was reading Matthew Henry's commentary. 
And his wife didn't know what was happening to him. She couldn't get his nose out of the book. He'd never been a reader. And he read and he read those wonderful passages in Romans 8. And once you're with Christ, you will never be lost. And he was shaken. And he began to go to church. And he was there in it visiting a church where the Bible was preached and salvation was explained. And in due course, he found the Lord. He repented of his sin. He turned his life over to Christ. And Christ changed him, made a new man out of him, put a new nature within him, lifted him up, and he became a praying believer and a man of rejoicing and great happiness. But that has happened not in precisely that way, finding a treasure in the rubbish, but that has happened to just millions of people and does every day in churches all over the world And people reading the Bible, sometimes people who are distressed beyond words by their circumstances in life, sometimes people who are as happy as the day is long with this vain world, and suddenly it strikes them that it's all vanity and futility and emptiness, and they begin to search for the living God. And that is what this is about. Don't forsake the fountain of living waters and dig your own cistern in this world, but turn to him, the God of pardon, the God of love, the God of indescribable power, the God of great goodness, the God who may be known, the God who will embrace you. Let's pray together. O God, our gracious Heavenly Father, look upon us, we ask. Prevent us from committing those two fatal and disastrous steps of forsaking Thee and embracing nothing at all. O Lord, help us, deliver us, receive us, and bless us all. We ask it in the name of Christ, our Saviour, for his sake. Amen.